Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome to that of Andy. As he mentioned, my name is Ben, and I serve as a ministry apprentice here. As we approach the Word of God, let us pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word, for its power, its authority, for its timeless relevance, for it is the Word of our living God. As we hear from it today, Lord, fix our eyes on Christ, be shaping our hearts more into His likeness for your glory. Amen. I've got a confession to make. Well, to be honest, it's more of a guilty pleasure to admit. It started a few years ago when, fresh out of university, I was searching for a job. But instead of searching for a job that was relevant to me, that fitted my experience, then, and I'll admit occasionally since, I've gone on job websites, turned off all the filters, and just had a look at the, the weird, the wacky, the wildly unattainable jobs that people across our country do. You ever done that? Just me? But the question that's always bouncing around my head as I do so is who fits this role? If you've looked for a job for yourself, you'll know that's one of the first sections you scan your eyes to. What is required to fulfill this role? Here's one for you, true story. Live on Indeed right now is a job advert for head of chocolate operations for a large company in London. And before you ask, yes, it includes oversight of all tasting operations for this company. See. Everyone likes the job search game now, don't you? But still I wonder who fits that role. As much as I might like it, as much as I might want it, if I'm honest, I don't match up. I'm not going to be spending my working day nibbling delicious chocolate. Who fits that role? Forget my dream job for a second. So similar question we're left asking as we approach Luke chapter 7. Remember chapter 6, as we saw last week and before Christmas, Jesus has just given the Sermon on the Plain, where he has highlighted the kind of upside-down kingdom manifesto of his kingdom, where the, the poor and the oppressed, they find satisfaction and blessing. But we also saw the job spec for being part of his kingdom, didn't we? Kingdom people were to turn the other cheek. They were to love and show mercy like the Father does. They were to bear good fruit, and ultimately, they were to obey God's Word. The, the section in the sermon from Jesus finished and was summarized with a question. Will you take Jesus' words as foundational or folly? Will you be wise and build your life on Jesus' words, or will you ignore them and face ruin and destruction? Who fits this role? I don't think it's any coincidence then, as we start this next section of Luke, from the start of seven to the end of eight, Luke starts to give us people, snapshots of what kingdom people are like. And as we'll see throughout the section, we see they have only one thing in common. It's not gender, it's not race, it's not even personal worthiness. No, it's that they see the king and they put their faith in him. The only one who could ever meet the standard 
of God's kingdom alone. That's what this section is about. Faith that restores. And as we read, we'll see a foretaste of the coming and ultimate restoration in Jesus as he dies and rises again. So as we approach chapter 7, we're going to see a miraculous healing. We read it in what James read to us, didn't we? But first, we're going to see a man understand the identity of Jesus, a Roman centurion. He's the central character of our passage. And thus, whilst a miraculous healing takes place, the narrative slows first to focus on the centurion, to show us how he understands the identity of Jesus, puts his faith in him, and spoiler, in doing so, his servant finds restoration. It's a beautiful picture of the universality of the gospel. So if you're anything like me and you like to know where we're going, you'll see on the screen behind you, we're going to have three points this evening. We're going to see two delegations sent to Jesus on the centurion's behalf, one saying, come, the other saying, stay. And then we're going to see Jesus's response. And that brings us to our first point. Jesus, come, this man is deserving. Read with me from verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There was a centurion servant whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. So briefly then, where are we? Jesus has finished teaching outside of Capernaum and has entered back into the town, a familiar place. He was here only a few chapters ago. He has taught in the synagogue. He has driven out demons. He has healed many. And as such, it is no surprise that wherever he goes, the crowd continue to follow. And immediately we hear of the centurion, don't we? He has a servant on the cusp of death. The parallel account of this event in Matthew 8 tells us he is also paralyzed. There's no doubt this man is in a bad way. Beyond the help of first century medicine, he is going to die. So we read in verse 3, the centurion decides to take action. And he sends a delegation of Jewish elders on his behalf to ask Jesus for help. Remember, he's heard of Jesus, and very specifically, he has very likely heard of Jesus healing many in chapter 4. Now, before we go any further, it's worth noting a few things about our centurion that's going to be important throughout. By occupation, he's a commanding officer in the occupying Roman Empire, in charge, as the name suggests, of a hundred men. He is a Gentile, that is, someone who is not Jewish, confirmed in verse 9 by Jesus' response to him. He is also wealthy, both assumed from his job, but shown in our passage by how he contributes to the building of the synagogue. And crucially, we're going to see this is a humble man shown in his response to Jesus. And lastly and interestingly, he's in good standing with the local Jews to the point where they will approach Jesus on his behalf. That is no small thing. Jewish elders, men of high regard in the community, are willing to act on a Roman soldier's 
behalf. I guess it's a bit like this. It's like a foreign ambassador who by living and embedding himself in the community has gained the respect and even the admiration of the locals. And as such, he sends a delegation of these Jewish elders to Jesus. And we see in his actions the first example of his faith. He um, believes that Jesus can heal his servant, and so he acts accordingly by asking these men to go. And so the delegation go, they find Jesus and plead with him for help. End of verse four, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. What is their plea? Jesus, come. This man is deserving. Why? Well, their case is built on two things. Firstly, he loves their nation, that is Israel. Their first tactic is to reason Jew to Jew. This centurion has respect for our customs, love for our people. After all, secondly, he has contributed to the building of our synagogue out of his own pocket. The case before Jesus is that the centurion is worthy of his help. It's a bit like this. I don't know if you were ever like me. As a child, you pleaded with your friend's parents to let them come for a sleepover. You ever did that? Because you thought by, by me asking instead of my friend, it would have somehow more weight. Laid out a case before them that I thought was watertight, but to them must have seemed so juvenile. He'd finished his chores, I'd plead. My parents approve, I'd emphasize. Please, please, please let him come, I'd beg. It's an interesting approach, isn't it? It shows these Jewish elders continue to have a wrong understanding of the identity of Jesus. They approach God, the one who just in this book to this point alone has shown his authority to heal the sick, to command demons even to forgive sins. And yet they approach Jesus, the Lord of all, transactionally. The irony is significant, isn't it? Jesus, who by choice has spent much of his ministry with society's outcasts, the poor, the sick, those who had done wrong, those with nothing to offer him in return, is expected to be persuaded by the worthiness of this man as if his help can be bought by good deeds in the sight of others. I wonder if that's true for us. As, as we gather, do we have a transactional approach to Jesus, to his word? If we're honest, do we fall into the trap of thinking we are deserving? Hey, I read my Bible. We're at church right now, aren't we? Hey, I listened to Andy last week, and I give my hard-earned cash in a cost-of-living crisis to this church. Surely, if anyone is deserving, it's me. Our, our thoughts, our actions, our prayers, transactional before the Lord of all? Well, as we're going to see throughout our passage, that is a wrong approach. For it is the approach of people who don't grasp the identity of Jesus and therefore their identity before him as unworthy people 
before a worthy and holy God. This is not the approach. In fact, it's the opposite of the approach of people building their lives, as we saw last week, on the firm foundation of Jesus' word. Centurion came to understand something of this as he hastily sends out the second delegation with the message and our second point, Jesus, stay. I am not deserving. So, despite the weak case laid out by the Jewish elders in verse 6, Jesus, in his compassion and his wisdom, starts heading towards the centurion's house. But before he reaches his destination, he is met by a second delegation of people, this time friends of the centurion, whose goal is to intercept Jesus with a message that is in stark contrast to the first. Read with me from middle of verse six. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion, realizing that Jesus is actually about to enter his home via his friends, pleads with him not to come, stating he is not deserving to have Jesus come under his roof. Not only that, he adds explanation as to why he hasn't come himself, saying he didn't even consider himself worthy to be in Jesus' presence. You can imagine the panic he feels as he thinks, what have I done? In a much more minor way, I'm sure we all know the feeling when you hit send on that email and realize you've forgotten the attachment. You've spelt their name wrong. You've said something just silly. You can't send that second follow-up email with the updated message out fast enough, can you? Likewise, the centurion can't boot his friends out the door fast enough with the updated message. Because in this short exchange, the centurion has recognized two things. Firstly, he's recognized his own identity before Jesus. In contrast to the Jewish elders who begged him up, who sung his praises, we see a man marked by humility. A man who declares himself unworthy of direct contact with Jesus. He doesn't want to see him face to face, let alone have him come into his house and under his hospitality. As he grasps something of the identity of King Jesus, he doesn't want to be anywhere near him. We saw a similar approach, didn't we, in chapter 5? Simon Peter, on a boat with Jesus, as he sees him miraculously fill the boat, as he grasps who he is, falls at his feet and begs him to go away. That is what it looks like to recognize real time our sinful an unworthy state before a frighteningly holy God. But secondly, he recognizes the identity of Jesus. The centurion understands the power and the authority that Jesus has. 
He calls him Lord as he recognizes he's the one with authority to heal just by his words. Just try and feel the weight of that. A Roman, a Roman soldier, a centurion, a Gentile recognizes a carpenter turned preacher as Lord, a term he'd be used to reserving only for the emperor. Here we have a clear admission of authority. Let's face it, from a man who knew how authority works. He's a commanding officer in this massive military structure. And so, to emphasize his understanding, he gives us an illustration. And he makes a, an argument from minor to major by highlighting that just as his word is obeyed as a commanding officer by those he's in charge of, just as he commands men to come and they come, as he commands them to go and they go, so as Jesus speaks, even sickness and death obey him as Lord of all. He understands with simply a word from Jesus, his servant will be healed. As we've seen throughout Luke, this is the God whose words have real power and ultimate authority. Just say the word. Remarkable, isn't it? This is not a magician pulling the wool over poor Jewish people's eyes. This is God who speaks and all creation obeys. So the question for us is, do we like the centurion, do we understand the power and authority of God's word? Do we have the appropriate reverence for it that stems from a right understanding of who he is and therefore who we are before him? Do we recognize its power and its authority? Do we see it as foundational or folly? This is the word of the living God the king. Do we submit to it, to it all? Are we those living under the authority of King Jesus and his word, or if we're honest, do we continue to crown ourselves? This has been a huge challenge for me as I've prepared, particularly in my own devotional time, as I often rush into or even neglect cherishing, being shaped by submitting to God's word. And it's because I've temporarily lost the reverence for the authority of God's word. And in doing so, crowned myself capable to get through the day without his lordship. What foolishness. We've printed out an easy to follow five day week Bible reading plan. It's on the connect table. Can I urge you to take one and prayerfully and expectantly start reading through the Bible? If five days are scary, take one anyway, start with one. Building our lives on the foundation of God's word is essential. The centurion understood something of that, didn't he? And he responded in faith. Despite, interestingly, not actually meeting Jesus face to face in our passage, he understood the identity of Jesus and trusted in him. In fact, this passage actually gives us a working definition of faith, summarized by one theologian commenting on this passage. 
as a plea to Jesus to offer his aid in the form of his power, even though one is unworthy to receive it. A plea to Jesus to offer his aid in the form of his power, even though one is unworthy to receive it. You see, faith paradoxically involves a sense of our own unworthiness, as we've seen throughout Luke so far. Simon Peter in the boat, Luke 5. John the Baptist declaring himself unworthy to dye Jesus' sandals in Luke 3. The centurion here. Salvation in Jesus is only needed because we're not worthy on our own. Similarly, this account should give us great confidence in our own faith and evangelism. We've all heard someone say, perhaps we've thought ourselves, well, I'd believe if I saw Jesus. Well, here we have the centurion, a rank outsider without the privileges of being Jewish, an unlikely character who puts his faith in Jesus as he understands the power of God's word. Hebrews 11 puts it like this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It is simply seeing that what God has said he would do, he did and therefore having full confidence that what he says he will do is a certainty. That is faith. That is what the centurion displayed here, and that is what we are called to. Not close your eyes, cross your fingers, hope for the best, best faith, but one that is rooted in the certainty of the power of God's word. The same word that 2,000 years later is still changing women and men's life in its power and its authority. Lastly then, our third point. Jesus' response. How does he respond? Look with me at verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. What is his response? He is amazed at his faith. Not even that. He hasn't seen such great faith in Israel, amongst the Jewish people whose promises from God were being fulfilled right before their eyes. Remarkable. The centurion had it all. Wealth, respect, social status. He's a commanding officer in the greatest empire in the world. And yet, this is the man who had faith. What a sucker punch to the crowd that were following him, who watched him perform miracles, heal the sick, even forgive sins. And yet, it is the faith of a Gentile man who, in our passage, doesn't even meet Jesus that trumps them all. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. Not limited to one group or those who meet a standard, neither only a crutch for the needy. In fact, only twice in the gospels do we read of Jesus being amazed. Once in Mark 6, where he is amazed at a lack of faith of the Jews around him. And contrastingly here, where he is amazed at the faith of this non-Jewish man. And what is the result? The men who had been sent 
return to find the servant well? There can be no doubt. A miracle of God has been performed. A paralyzed man at death's door has been fully restored. Jesus' words have real power and ultimate authority. So please don't fall into the trap as I did at first reading in my preparation of reading verse 10 as a kind of footnote with a sense of familiarity. Every time we see Jesus, we are to be astounded by his power, his authority. For we've been shown in Luke, this is the awesome God, worthy of our praise and awe, the one who speaks and creation obeys, even sickness, even death. In this healing, we see the first of a few examples in this section of faith that restores. And they serve as a picture and a preview of the full restoration that is to come in only a few chapters' time. When the sinless Jesus would die on the cross to take the punishment we deserved for our rebellion. But then he would rise three days later, burying death and providing full restoration of relationship between us as sinful people and our perfect holy God for all who by his grace respond to Jesus in faith. So I wonder how you respond. Because there is a warning to us listening in the rebuke to the crowd. Those who literally followed him, but did not follow him by trusting in him. As we see Jesus in Luke, as we hear from his very word, I hope you see you can't sit on the fence. As we saw last week, to fail to build your life on the foundation of Jesus' words is disastrous. No, we're called to the same faith that the centurion had, to put our trust in the only solid foundation, Jesus Christ. For as we read, Jesus both cares enough to rescue us despite our unworthiness and alone has the power and authority to bring restoration. For those of us who have already responded in faith, don't switch off. What an incredible thing to thank God for, that he has opened your eyes, that he has given you this faith that you can have full assurance in salvation and a certain hope that one day you will be with him where you will praise his name forever. But as we think about our loved ones, our colleagues, our neighbors, let us be spurred on to share the word of God, that by his spirit and in his grace, they might receive also and put their faith in him. For there is real encouragement, because who fits the role? That's the question we began with, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't certainly the centurion in his own merit. For this respected, wealthy man of repute, he knew himself he wasn't worthy before Jesus. As we realize that likewise, we cannot fulfill the role, that we cannot meet the standard of God's kingdom in our imperfection, we see the only one who does, Jesus. And the call is not to meet his standard, it's to submit to him in faith as he changes our hearts, as he provides full and final restoration. For these are the people that inherit the kingdom of God. These are kingdom people. 
These are the people that fit the role. Those who humbly understand their identity as sinners before King Jesus and by His grace respond in faith. wonder if you'll do that today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word, for its power and its authority, for how it shows us Jesus, the only one in whom there is full and final restoration. Thank you for the example of the centurion. Lord, as we see Jesus in our series, deepen our faith in the victorious Jesus, for your kingdom and, the, and your glory forever. Amen. We're going to have the joy of singing again. Afterwards, we, I will close our formal time together and tea and coffee will be served from the hatch. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>